was doing a lot of undercover work and I ended up purchasing 10 kilos of cocaine on the street as an undercover officer. I think it still is the largest hand-to-hand -hand undercover drug deal in the war's history. So every narcotics deal that I went to, I was always nervous. I had a lot of training um, and a lot of experience as I did more undercover deals, but the nervousness of it kept me on my toes and I think kept me safe because I was a little bit more alert of my surroundings. I think law enforcement in general, you get a little bit of cynicism. I think it gets a little bit more intense when you enter the undercover world. There's a lot of bad and negativity that you just constantly see on a daily basis. I always viewed people probably at their worst. I grew up in a private Catholic school as a little kid, got married young, knew about God, knew there's a God, but really never was involved in the church. My youngest son, Brandon, I remember he asked his mom one day, hey, why don't we go to church? And we're like, you wanna go to church? We'll go. So we started going to Chapel Street. I think I was just at that point, just attending church. I, I knew there's a God, I believed in God. It turned for me very seriously about three years ago. Our family went through a very personal trying time where I think it tested all our faith. That's when I made the decision of completely surrendering to God and saying, I am no longer in control. Whatever you have to do, you have to do, and I have to accept that. It wasn't an easy road. It took a lot of prayer, a lot of crying, a lot of just humbling yourself and saying, whatever has to happen, you're in control, I am not. Well, it wasn't easy getting from not trusting anybody, doing it all myself, to trusting God completely. Those are real and are still real struggles for me, is trusting people because of the way I was trained in the police world and the narcotics world. So we went on a hiking trip with my youngest son and we were only supposed to hike a few miles. We ended up hiking a total of 10 miles, got lost, it was starting to get dark. We get to the end of the trail and we're looking for some help because we are exhausted. We're beat down, we got no water, no food. And I go into my police mode because I need help now. And I'm scanning the parking lot, who can help me? And there was a gentleman that I looked at that right away I'm like, eh, I'm not even gonna ask him, right? Because I already had a little checklist in my head of things that he didn't check off. Well, that gentleman walks over eventually to where we're at and he says, it looks like you need some help. My name is Elijah, my wife's name is Mary. And I just start inside laughing and I looked up and I'm like, you have a sense of humor, God. Because not only do you send help, it's got to be somebody named Mary and Elijah. He was our ticket out of the problem. He took us where we needed to go to, and yet I didn't want to ask him for help because of the checklist I was going through from my prior experiences. Shame on me. But that's when I saw God working. He's telling me, this is what you're praying for. 
I put somebody to help you that doesn't fit the mold you're looking for because of your cynicism. And just so you know, this is an open door. His name is going to be Elijah, so you don't have any questions. <laughs> Knowing what I was working for and praying for and struggling with, I'm 100% sure this was God answering one of my prayers saying, keep doing what you're doing because you have to trust me. You have to be obedient. So I retired after 26 years of service. I'm really enjoying my, my uh, retirement, not only because I, I get to spend time with my family and see them grow, but this amazing journey that I'm going through myself with God. I have to wake up every morning, just humble myself and say, what am I gonna do for you today? I think what God is really trying to teach me now is that I need to continue to walk in faith even though I cannot see. And that's my favorite verse in 2 Corinthians. I love Alfredo's story. Um, I had not heard that part of his story before the video, but... I do believe that God does have a sense of humor sometimes. I believe mostly that he knows us, knows where we struggle, and he hears us, and he will answer prayers. But I love that story, and you may uh, be glad to know that Alfredo, in his retirement, part of what he's doing is serving with our uh, security team here at Chapel Street on one of our campuses, and I am personally glad we have something like that with that kind of experience on our security team. So uh, I love just love hearing his story. We're going to take just a short time of prayer now before the, uh, the message. And before we go to prayer, I need to mention to you, some of you have heard already, but uh, we got, I got news late last night uh, from Becky Beers that um, her uh, parents-in-law, Gil and Arlie Beers, dear friends, who usually sit right down there, were in a, a bad traffic accident just yesterday. Uh, Gil and Arlie are 94 and 95 years old. Uh, they are, uh, were injured. They both have broken sternums. They were taken to Central DuPage Hospital. They're in critical care there now. Uh, no, new, no new news this morning, but we'll be getting uh, uh, news a little bit later today about uh, how they're doing. So uh, today, we're, all we can do today is to lift them up in prayer and pray for the whole family. Um, Ron Beers, this is Becky's wife, uh, Gil and Arlie's son, flew in late last night from California to try to be with his parents today. So we'll lift them up today and be in prayer for them, uh, and then we'll move into the message. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that we can come before you t together today and offer you the praise that is due your name as our God, our Redeemer, the one who knows us, the one who hears our prayers, uh, the one who guides us. We thank you for Alfredo's story, just one story of the many, many stories that are part of Chapel Street Church, um, and we thank you um, how you've uh, guided uh, he and his wife over these last few years uh, through the ministries of Chapel Street to grow in their faith and now make an impact through their service. So we just thank you for them and ask you to bless their family with further growth. And Lord, what's on our hearts th this morning is um, the, the health and the lives of two of our dear friends, Gil and Arlie Beers, who have been part of this church for decades and were in an accident yesterday. Uh, we simply uh, lift them up to you. We uh, ask for your sovereign care over both of them. We know they belong to you. Their lives are in your hands, and we trust you with them. But we do pray for, uh, for Ron and Becky and their entire extended family during the, uh, these hours of concern um, and, and, 
and pain uh, for their parents, and, and we just ask that you would give them comfort and that you would provide uh, healing uh, to Gil and Arlie uh, throughout today and into tomorrow uh, and help the visits they have with family be sweet and good. And we ask you that you would be able to and see fit to bring them um, back to us someday soon. Lord, we also pray for those who can't be with us today, watching at home um, at some point during the week. We, we ask you to, to, to share, let them know by your spirit that uh, they are remembered, they are loved, and most of all, you know them and see where they are. Lord, now uh, we ask you to teach us through your word, uh, teach us in ways that we can understand and, and put into practice these things that you have to say to us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you noticed um, how the definition of certain words has changed over time? For example, a simple word like friend used to mean someone that you enjoyed and you spent time with, someone you knew. Now it means someone who clicks on your Facebook page and follows you and you don't even know them. How many of you have friends like that on Facebook that you don't even know? My wife always complains. I don't even know this person. They want to be friends. How about the word text? used to refer to a printed wor uh, word in a book. Now it's something you do with your phone. Or the word tweet, something a bird used to do. And now we do this on our phones as well. Or how about the word, my favorite is the word literally. Right? The word literally used to uh, refer to something that actually happened or was really true. Like, I literally walked a mile yesterday. But now it doesn't mean that anymore. The meaning has actually been changed in the dictionary. Now, literally can be used in a figurative way. Like, I lit, my legs literally fell off when I was walking. So, it means a, a, feeling of strong, a strong feeling about something, whether or not it's true. So, the word literally, literally doesn't mean literally anymore. <laughs> it's confusing. I think we all would agree that definitions matter. For example, if Pastor Jeff asked you if you wanted to do a workout... You need to know that his definition of workout is probably different than yours. He's not going to do a few push-ups and sit-ups. He's going to push around several thousand pounds of barbells. One of my boys did a workout with Jeff one time, couldn't raise his arms for three days. <laughs> Pastor Jeff's definition is different than mine. If Pastor Bruce asks you to go for a run, he's not talking about, you know, 10 minutes on a treadmill. He's talking about running at least 10 miles because he's probably training for his next marathon, because I think he's done 33 right now. Definitions matter. When my wife asks me to clean out, to, to unload the dishwasher, and I say, I will in a minute, there's a good chance that her definition of a minute and mine are just a little bit different. Definitions matter. What about the phrase that we hear a lot these days? I want to live my best life. I want to live my best life now. Or a phrase like the good life. What is your best life? What is the good life? What is a great life? Well, today we're going to see how Jesus himself defines the word great, how he defines a great life. We're in a series called The Way. We've been looking at uh, what made following Jesus so unique, so different in the ancient world that it was just simply called The Way and what that means for us today as people of The Way. Today we look at Luke chapter 22. The context for this short paragraph is what we call the Last Supper. So this is the, the Passover meal, the night before Jesus went to the cross. 
Um, Luke tells us that Jesus, by this point, has already spoken to them about his coming suffering. He's already taken the bread and the cup and explained that it was his body and his blood. And then we read the text that we're going to study today. Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." It's a familiar text to a lot of us. We've heard it in different forms. It occurs in a couple of the different Gospels. But the first thing I want to pull out of it today is simply what I'm calling the way of the world. So point one today is the way of the world. Uh, When I was in high school, I think it was when I was a junior or so, my best friend and I uh, declared war on the school library. Now, let me explain. It wasn't really that violent. But my friend Dave and I uh, were basically good kids. We went to church together, played sports together. But we had a a kind of running feud with a school librarian who was a tiny little lady, like this tall, named Miss Cipher, Miss Priscilla Cipher. Now, she was small, but she was mighty. She was the head librarian, and she ran our school library with an iron fist. I mean, she had zero tolerance for talking and goofing off in her library. Now, that was actually our, our, our most, uh, what we enjoyed doing most in the library, my friend and I, was talking and goofing off. So we were at odds every day. We were in the library with Miss Cipher. She was constantly shushing us and constantly reprimanding us. And so one day we discovered, quite by accident, that the shelves in our library, all the bookshelves, were um, movable. They were on tracks, so the shelves were held in place by four little metal clips on each corner of the shelf. And then my friend discovered, I'll blame this on him, that if you removed one of those clips, it made the bookshelf slightly unstable, which meant that the next person that either added the book or took a book off often would cause the whole shelf to tip and all the books would fall to the floor. So we thought that was a really interesting discovery. So we spent the next couple of weeks, I'm not not proud of this, but we did this. We went around the library and we removed dozens and dozens of these clips, one per shelf, rendering all of them unstable. And then we just sat back to watch what would happen. And sure enough, frequently, every 15 minutes or so, or 10 minutes or so, there would be uh, the sound of books falling to the floor. didn't take Miss Cipher very long to figure out the book phenomenon. It also didn't take her very long to figure out who was responsible because we were probably giggling over in the corner and shows he knew exactly who the suspects were. And then she brought the hammer of her authority down. Little tiny lady. First, she made us stay after school and replace every single clip that we'd taken out and all the books that had fallen on the floor, which was reasonable. That was, that's justice. And then she excommunicated us from the library for the rest of our junior year. So, Miss Cipher, interestingly enough, eventually became one of my favorite teachers. By the next year, we became sort of buddies. Uh, she kind of rehabbed our, uh, us. She taught us how to behave in the library. But she also taught me something about power and authority. 
Look, look at Luke uh, 22, verse 24. A dispute, that is, quarrel or argument, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I'm going to pause there. Most of us, when we read this little text, we think, well, how could this be? I mean, they've been with him now for over three years. They've walked with Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've seen how he lived. How could they be possibly arguing about who is the greatest on the night before Jesus is going to go to the cross? How could they be so dense still? Well, a little perspective might help here. Uh, I think that there's something a little bit different going on than just than how we would think about arguing about the greatest. I think Jesus has been talking in the last couple of weeks prior to this dinner that, uh, of his departure, that he's going to be leaving them. Uh, and that night he talked about his coming suffering and, and his death, although they didn't fully understand it. So I think what they were probably arguing about is if he's going to leave us, if he's going to be gone, who among us is the one who should lead this group going forward? Who among us is qualified? Who really should be the leader? So I think that's maybe what they were arguing about. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And I put three words in red on purpose on that text because we need to pay attention to these words. He says, lordship. Lordship is a word that just means to rule over, as Miss Cipher ruled over her library. Authority is it means to wield power, as in Miss Cipher had the authority to ban us from the library for a whole year. Benefactors is an interesting word. This is the only place in the whole New Testament where we see this particular word. It uh, means a doer of good, but it has a nuance to it in that culture. It means someone who does good primarily for selfish reasons. All right? These were uh, sort of people in authority who were doing good things to receive the praise of the people for doing good things. This sort of would be like um, a celebrity in our culture who holds a press conference to, to announce they're giving a donation to a charity. So sort of announce to the world, behold, I am doing something good. Am I not benevolent? That's what's going on here. So it strikes me that each of these words are part of the world's answer to the question, what is the good life? What is my best life now? What is a great life? A great life is climbing the ladder of success to the point where you have lordship, you have position or status, where you have authority, you have some power over some, some area of life, or maybe over a, a business or a company or a school or a library. And you have the wealth and resources to be called a benefactor, right? Now, none of these things are bad or evil in and of themselves, Lordship and authority are necessary. In every human institution, we are told, uh, even in Scripture, to, we are to respect the authority of human government. That's, uh, lordship and authority are good and necessary. Having enough wealth to bless others with generosity is also a good thing. But each of these are easily corrupted by two other things, by two attitudes of the heart. And this is what we're going to see is going on among the disciples here, why they're having a dispute. The first thing is the way of competition, or I might say the way of comparison, the need to be better than someone else, okay? My brother tells a story, and he's a pastor in Ohio. He tells a story of many years ago. He was driving um, like an eight-year-old Honda Accord, had like 150,000 miles on it, and he pulls up to a stoplight in his town, 
and uh, right next to him pulls up a car that's way older than his car. And he was in an eight-year-old Honda Accord. This other car has like cracked windows, um, uh, duct tape holding a bumper up, up uh, that kind of stuff. And my brother found himself thinking, well, this guy probably, you know, probably didn't really apply himself in school. You know, might have dropped out. Just not quite as successful as I am in my eight-year-old Honda Accord. He said, as soon as he had that thought, another car drove up on the other side and stopped at the light. It was a guy driving a late model, brand new Lexus or Mercedes. And my brother thought to himself, materialist, right? <laughs> Meaning that he realized his thinking on both sides was the way of the world. That is the way of competition, the way of comparisons, finding some way to feel superior to the person next to you in one way or another. And we do this almost automatically in our culture, don't we? We do it in all kinds of ways. I remember years ago when our boys were young, they'd go out trick-or-treating for Halloween. They'd come back with their, with their pillowcases full of, of, of Halloween candy, and they would dump it out on the floor in piles, and they would then count their candy, right? Count every piece of candy, and they would compare. And one boy would say, I got more candy than you. And the other would be just in tears. I, I don't have enough candy. I don't have enough candy as he has. I've been to, to, to conventions, conferences of pastors only, just pastors at a conference. Um, and eventually, eventually, one of them will find a way to bring up into the conversation what? How many people go to his church? Or what size the budget is? It's the same thing. It's Halloween candy. It's cars pulling up next to you. It's the way of the world. It's the way the world thinks. It's the way of competition, the way of comparison. The second thing is the way of the world is the way of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Uh, the uh, boxer and culture icon Muhammad Ali became famous in part for his constant declaration, proclaiming, I am the greatest. I saw one quote where he says, I was saying that before I even knew I was, he said. I am the greatest. But did you know there's someone in the Bible like that? Pastor Andrew mentioned this obscure text at a recent preaching team meeting. I had never, I don't think I'd ever read it before, certainly don't remember reading it before. It's in 3 John 9. How many of you knew there was a 3 John in your New Testament? It's only one chapter. 3 John verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Okay, how would you like to be that guy, Diotrephes? Okay, God says to him, you know, I have good news and bad news. Good news is your name is going to be recorded in my word forever. Diotrephes. But it's going to be because you like to put yourself first. That's the bad news. I thought about that. How would you like that to be true of you? I want to be careful here. There's a difference between ambition and selfish ambition. Ambition is good. Ambition is good. Ambitious person is simply motivated to invest their talents and their gifts in a responsible and constructive way. Ambition is good. But selfish ambition is the person who wants to be sure he or she is better than you. Someone who puts themselves first. James writes about this in the, in the New Testament. He writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So Jesus here is teaching his disciples and us that that's the way the world thinks. That's the way of the world, but there is another way. That's the second point today, which is the way of true greatness. I was walking through an airport fairly recently, and I happened to notice a shoeshine stand. Um, turns out that shoeshine stands have been in airports for decades. I just don't think I'd really noticed. I was walking through a concourse, and there was a, there's a shoeshine stand. And something about it just surprised me. Like, this is 2022. We have shoeshine stands? Because it just seemed to shout out inequity, you know, economic inequity, uh, a dramatic difference in status. Literally, there's one sitting above and one kneeling below. One sitting above, like, I can afford to have someone shine my shoes in public. And the other one kneeling down, I need to take a job shining someone else's shoes. It just surprised me. Like, we still do this? So obviously, the person sitting up in that chair having their shoes shine is far greater in every measure, right, than the person doing the shoe shining. Jesus sees things a bit differently. Verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So Jesus here catches the disciples in their own assumptions, in their own thinking. They're arguing about who among them is the greatest, who's qualified to lead once Jesus is gone, who will be in charge. And they're thinking about position, right? They're thinking about lordship, authority, or, and like being a benefactor. How can I, which one of us is going to ascend to that role? So when Jesus says, not so with you, I think they were like, wait, wait, huh, what? Because they believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's the promised king sent by God. And they are in the inner circle. They know him. They followed him. I think they assumed there were going to be places of honor for them when he came into his kingdom. They were going to have position. And of course, they would and they did, but just not the way they thought. Jesus is saying it's good that you want to be great. It's good that you want to lead, but greatness is not what you think it is. And leadership is not what you think it is. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Jesus is teaching them and us two things here. First, the way of true greatness is the way of humility. Humility. The word youngest there uh, is, a, is a word that carries the meaning of one who lacks status, one who lacks position, the youngest. He's saying that the one shining the shoes is greater than the one getting his or her shoes shined. He's saying that the waiter serving food to the table or the busboy who cleans up the dishes after everyone's gone is greater than those who are enjoying a fine meal. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Jesus is teaching that true greatness is found in humility, not status. Secondly, he's saying the way of true greatness is the way of 
service, way of service. Um, I've told this little story before in talking about this, uh, these verses, but it fits so well I'm going to tell it again. Um, one of my favorite people, most memorable people in my years here at Chapel Street uh, was a man named uh, Bill Braun. Bill, as many of you know, is Chris Saris's father. Uh, Bill passed away in uh, 2015. Now, Bill and his wife, Bernadine, had been members here for some close to 40 years by the time I became senior pastor in 1994. Uh, Bill had served the church in every conceivable role, Sunday school teacher, uh, superintendent of finances, even all the way up to the to church chairman at one time, maybe, at least, maybe two different uh, stints as church chairman. So he'd done everything. And Bill also could be somewhat opinionated if you knew him. Uh, he was known to come to annual meetings or important business meetings armed with a question. And he would stand up and he would ask that question. Sometimes it was about a particular line item in a budget that he paid attention to or be a point of order. And so naturally, as a, as a young senior pastor, Bill could sometimes be intimidating. I would sometimes feel intimidated by Bill and his opinions. Until one Sunday morning, uh, between services, I think, I had to go downstairs to check on something and I had to walk right by what then was our nursery here. Uh, and all those children's rooms were downstairs here. And as I, got, as I was walking to where I was going to go, I heard a child crying, screaming actually, in, in, in the nursery. And I, just, I glanced in the doorway, and the child screaming was one of our sons, our youngest son at the time. Just screaming because he had trouble with uh, separation anxiety or whatever. And I just glanced in, and the person holding him was Bill Braun, rocking him in a chair, in a rocking chair, holding him, holding him, trying to comfort him. And then I found out later that he did that every week, because our son screamed every week, sometimes for half an hour. He just rocked him in the chair until he went to sleep. That's humility. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's service. That's true greatness. That's the way of his kingdom. And that leads us to the third point today, the way of Jesus. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, you see what Jesus does here. He asks a question, a kind of rhetorical question, to which the answer is obvious, right? Who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? The one sitting in the big chair or the one shining the shoes? Then he answers his own question, which is obvious. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In other words, that's the way the world thinks. That the one who has status, the one at the table, is greater than the one who serves. Then he gives the zinger. But I am among you as one who serves. In one sense, he turns our culture, he turns our modern culture of uh, me first, competitive, uh, ladder climbing to success, right on his head. He turns everything upside down with one sentence. But I am among you as one who serves. And then if we jump to the Apostle John's version of the same events, the Last Supper, we read what happens next. John 13, beginning in verse 2. During supper, this is the Passover meal, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his, the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want to pause here for a moment. I know we've read, you've read that story before or heard that story before, but I want to slow it down. I want you to see it in almost slow motion, the way John is remembering this. Notice the detail John remembers from this moment. He says, Jesus gets up from the table. In those days, tables were low slung. They reclined. They sort of, they sort of sat on their sides on cushions to eat a meal. Um, he stands up from the table, takes off his outer garments, Now, I'm not going to do this, but if I did, it would get really uncomfortable in here, wouldn't it? If I took off my shirt too, just had my undershirt on? That's what Jesus does. He takes off his outer garments. He takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, and then gets down on his knees. I would do that too, but I probably couldn't stand up. And he begins to wash their feet. Do you think he had their attention? Do you think Jesus had their attention in that moment? I think he did. And I think that's why he did it. What he does is so unusual. Just a word about foot washing in those days. We, we kind of know that people in those days wore sandals, not closed shoes like we wear. They walked in roads that were almost all dirt. So by the end of the day, their feet were very dirty. Much more, I mean, we can't even imagine how dirty their feet were compared to how we are. Because our feet don't get very dirty, really, in our culture. But they did then. And it was common courtesy to, to offer foot washing when someone came into your home. Usually done by a female servant. Because it was way beneath the men to do that. Or it was a slave. In fact, Jewish rabbis often taught that this task of washing feet was so menial, so lowly, that even if the man was a Jewish, even if the slave was a Jew, he would not do this task. A non-Jew would do it. It was so lowly to be almost offensive. Like imagine President Biden uh, flying to Florida to check out the damage from Hurricane Ian. And he gets off his presidential helicopter. He walks down. He takes off his overcoat, his suit coat. He undoes his tie, throws it aside, takes off his dress shirt to where he only has his undershirt on. And then he asks for a shovel and steps into the muck and mire and begins to dig. How shocked would that be for us as Americans? Presidents don't do that. They have people who do that, right? Jesus is doing this on purpose. Think about whose feet he washed, too. Judas was still at the table. He washed the feet of one who would betray. Peter was at the table. He washed the feet of the one who would deny him three times. And all the rest of them he washed, and they all ran away that very night and left him on his own. John continues his story. When he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments and returned to his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, there's some debate over the centuries as to whether Jesus intended to make foot washing a kind of sacrament, like the bread and cup of the Lord's Supper or communion, or like baptism. But the interesting thing is, we don't see foot washing 
anywhere else in the rest of the New Testament. We're never commanded as, as people of the way, as the church, to wash feet like we are to remember the Lord's Supper or to baptize. So I don't think Jesus was giving us a gesture that we should turn into a ritual. And I've participated in, in, in ceremonies of foot washing, and they're moving and they're powerful. But I don't think he was giving us a gesture to repeat as a ritual. I think he was giving us a posture that is a way to live our lives. He said, I've given you an example of how you should lead, how you should live, of what a great life looks like. He's teaching us that true greatness is humble, lowly, and inconvenient. That true greatness is love made visible in service. Love that moves toward the mess, moves toward the messy and the dirty. Here's a question. Where does our service move toward that which is messy or dirty? Where are, you, where are you washing feet these days? Where are you doing that which no one else really wants to do? Where are you washing feet in your family or in your workplace or in your school? Where are you washing feet? Where are you moving toward that which is messy? This is Jesus, the maker of all things, who, of whom Scripture says all things will one day be under his feet, who is washing their feet. Jesus redefines greatness. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, not for selfish ambition. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is the way of Jesus. The way of greatness is the way of humility. The way of greatness is the way of service. But we ask, how? How can we get there? How can we mature like that? How can we live that way? We've already covered it in this series by acknowledging that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. By denying ourselves, remember that message? Denying ourselves, taking of our cross. That is, we need to accept a new operating system at the center of our lives. Not self, but the cross. By abiding in his love and by loving and serving others the way he loves and serves us. In a novel I read uh, a number of years ago, a historical novel uh, called Gates of Fire, written by an author named Stephen Pressfield. It's a story about um, the Battle of Thermopylae in the ancient world when uh, 300 Greek Spartan warriors under the leadership of King Leonidas with, uh, st- uh, held a small strip of land against uh, a million Persian uh, soldiers uh, so Athens could protect itself. It's, it's a really interesting story, the story of the 300. But at the end of that historical novel, it's not a Christian book, He has a servant describe his king, King Leonidas of the Spartans. And listen to these words, though, in the context of what Jesus is teaching. I will tell his majesty what a king is. A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry, nor sleep when they stand at watch upon the wall. 
A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear, nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and by the pains he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require the service of those he leads, but provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. It's a great quote. Jesus is our king. He is among us as one who serves. This is the way of Jesus. And we are people of the way. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this redefinition of what the good life really is, what greatness really is. Thank you for this demonstration of what that life looks like. Teach us your humility. Teach us to live our lives not seeking only position for ourselves or status for ourselves or power for ourselves, but seeking opportunities to move toward the mess, the dirty, the broken, to serve. Teach us to live in your way. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, just before the benediction, remind you a couple things. First, uh, pick up a little Fall Fest flyer so you know what's going on when this coming weekend. We'd love to have you participate. And second, please remember in your prayers uh, the rest of today and tonight and on into the week, uh, Gil and Arlie Beers as they recover from their injuries and their family too. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is among us as one who serves and who calls us to follow him. Amen. Have a great day.